Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, we thank you for the grace to be here, to listen to your word once again. Father, be exalted in the name of Jesus. Father, we shall do today, shall glorify you and you alone in the name of Jesus. Father, I ask that you help me to be able to connect and be able to speak your word to your people this evening in the name of Jesus. Father, help me me too in the name of Jesus and I pray that Lord your children will receive your word O Lord as you intended in the name of Jesus thank you father in Jesus name we have prayed amen good evening everybody we're going to be looking we're going to be starting a new series as we talked about the last time we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. So for the next every week we'll be looking at a chapter in the book of Colossians. There are four chapters. We're going to be looking at one every week. We're going to be starting today from the very first chapter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Um, can we have the CSB version, please? The Bible says... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully. Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death 
to present you wholly faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. And I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that all that works powerfully in me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I wanted to read the full, I wanted to read the full chapter just so we get a picture of it. Our focus isn't going to be every single word or every single verse, but there are some key points that are of great importance. First, I'll just give a little bit of background as to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is part of what is called the prison epistles. So those are letters that Paul wrote from a prison cell. There are books like Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, all of these came from the prison where Paul was and he wrote, he wrote to the church in Colossae. The reason or one of the main reasons why he wrote to this church is because of heresy. Now, heresy is something that you might have come across today. You've heard people say some very interesting things about the Christian faith or talk about Jesus or God in a very unbiblical way, should I say. And one of the things that we need to know is that this is not new. This is something that has been around since the very early church, from the very beginning. There's always been a way, you know. The Jesus talks about, Jesus gave a parable, the parable of the man who sowed good seed in his farmland. And the Bible tells us that in the middle of the night, an enemy came and sowed tares amongst them. And so they are growing together. And we have a similar situation here in that the word of God has come upon the earth. And the word of God is pure and fruitful and incredible. However, in the midst of that, there's always, there are some tears. And these tears are not the real thing. They are not the, they are not the fruits. They are not the wheat. They are fabrications. They are corruptions. They are anomalies. Paul falls back by writing this letter to establish the truth of the gospel to the people of Colossae. Tradition tells, suggests that it's very possible that it's actually Epaphras who planted this church uh, because Paul himself never met the people of Colossae, never met the Colossians, never got to meet one another face to face. They only knew him as, oh, this is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he wrote this letter. This topic of heresy is in is very problematic because it's something that has, like I said, has been around from the very beginning. And it's something that looks to obscure the gospel. It's, it's ideal is to teach a false gospel 
that would then ruin the truth of life that is in every single one of us. And it's something that has always happened from the very beginning. And interestingly, the biggest thing that Paul was trying to lay forth in this chapter was the preeminence of Christ. It was the full identity of Jesus. Establishing it and making it plain. The reason for this is very simple. Every single major heresy that you found in the world, in the ancient world, and even in the world today, the problem is always the same. A distorted view of Jesus Christ. Always him. They might not mess with the Holy Spirit. They might not mess with God the Father. They might just leave everything as everything else. They might leave. When you see that Jesus, he's the one that will always mess with. So he had different ones. He had the Arians. The Arians were the ones who did not believe that Jesus was God. It was like, oh, he was born. He was a great man. He was amazing. He was wonderful. He was everything, everything, everything. But that essentially, Christ was a created being. And it was for this reason that we have things like the Nicene Creed. Some of these creeds that stipulates and states for sure. You know, the Nicene Creed says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. It's longer than that. But those lines were of great importance because the early church needed to establish and stand that. No, this is what we believe in regarding Jesus Christ. Or is it the Apollinarians who believed that, oh, yes, Jesus was indeed divine and he had a human body. But you see, that's his mind and was not, was not human. It was just, just divine alone. Therefore, taken away from Christ's humanity. Or is it the adoptionists who said that essentially Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism? So when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist and the heavens opened and God said that this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that it was in that moment that Jesus became the Son of God, not before. Or is it the Gnostics who believe that Jesus was the representation of, a, of the good God? While the God of the Old Testament was this evil, wicked, you know, um, tyrant who wanted to kill everybody. What you would find all through history, even till today, is that every major heresy looks to mess with Jesus and looks to give a convoluted and distorted view of him. So chapter 1 of Colossians was incredibly important in stating the identity of Jesus and who Jesus was or who Jesus is today, yesterday, and forevermore. If we look at the verses, starting from the early part of the verses, verse, after his greetings to the people of Colossae, by the time he started to really get into what he was talking about, we started to see some very interesting theological things that he was pointing out. And we're going to look at some of them. So from verse 4, where he said that, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Let's look at the next verse. And then it says, Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth the gospel. 
what Paul was pointing out here, and some of the things that we had to pay attention to, was that the people of Colossae, or the Christians in Colossae, what was important was for them to never forget where their hope stems from. Understanding where hope comes from. Understanding where it begins, or what brings it about, was of great importance. It's something I call the path to truth. He explained the mechanics, essentially, of faith, love, and hope. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, it talks about how there's the big three. It says, faith, hope, and love. And of these, the greatest is love. But this does not mean that the other two are not of great importance. In fact, hope is very, very important because ultimately, that is what, make, that is what brings us to belief. That is what keeps us in belief. What keeps you standing today is the hope that you have of eternal rewards. Is the hope that you have of an eternity with Christ. That's what keeps you standing. And Paul was reminding them that don't forget this hope that we've heard about your faith. We've heard about your love. We've heard about all of these. You've heard about these things and we are happy and we pray for you. But that the foundation is based on the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. That this must not be shaken. That hope is incredibly important. And looking at verse 9 to verse 14, where he continues speaking to them, you would see there, he said that for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks to the Father, which has met us, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and had translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The knowledge of his will with all wisdom. This is important because understanding the will of God would make it a lot less likely to be pulled away by heresies. When you understand what God's will is in any person's life, it makes it so that the person is not just dragged away into something else. And that's true. If you know the plan to something, then it's a lot less likely that you'll be drawn to anywhere else to do anything else. So, for instance, I remember recently, I think it was yesterday, I saw, I saw a post. It just came to mind now. I saw a post by a lady. She said that she was telling people that people should not be careful with social media, not to let social media influence how they act in their relationships with other people. So apparently she was dating a young man, but because she had seen on social media that, you know, guys were always spending on their girlfriends, taking them on fascinating trips and doing all of those things, she just assumed that her partner did not love her. And because she felt that way, 
she decided to go and meet someone else. So, after meeting the somebody else, she then later found out that apparently the boyfriend had been saving money so that he could adopt his nephew who were in a bad situation. And that's why he hadn't been spending so much on her. And she was like, ah, that sh she wants him back, but he hates her, so she can't go back. And it was a funny thing, like, we, I kind of looked at her like, oh, wow, that's, that's just silly. How would you do something so silly and all of that? Why would you let? But the point I'm trying to make from all of that is this. If she had known what his plan was, if she had known that, oh, this is what he wants to do with this money, then it's a lot less likely that she would have been dragged into something else. Now, I'm not saying here that he should have told her or he had an obligation. No, I'm not, that's not uh, my business here. What I'm taking from that is the fact that knowledge of the plan or knowledge of what is supposed to happen, of an idea of it, is, more, is, is what keeps us standing on a particular path. And it's the same with the will of God. God does not tell us the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning, but he doesn't tell us. But at the same time, God does not leave us in the dark. God is not a God of, okay, just shall I live somehow, shall? Or God will not come to you and say, work for me, the end, and go away. No. He'll tell you, okay, this is what I want you to do for me. Now, you might not know the final result. You might not know where it all ends. But it's not that God will leave you in the dark and not give you anything to go on. No. And knowledge of that will is very helpful when it comes to standing your ground. Because when you know that God has a plan for me, and this is the direction in which he wants me to go, someone is not going to come and tell you that, oh, no, look at this direction instead. Go this way instead. No. Because you'll be like, what are you talking about? I'm not supposed to go that way. If you remember the cartoon, Pinocchio, it's a very classic story of a puppet that was made to be like a boy, and he was given life, and he was told that if he was a good boy, then he would, find he would be made into a real boy. But one of the things that weren't, wasn't particularly clear was what exactly entailed or what exactly made someone a good boy. And because of that, Pinocchio made quite a few mistakes because he wasn't particularly sure. He had the cricket who was supposed to be his conscience, and that one tried to direct him. But, you know, Pinocchio still went ahead to go in certain directions. What Paul was pointing out to the Colossians here was that knowing God's will, and that's why he prayed for them, say, may you know his will. May you know it in all wisdom and in all understanding and in all knowledge. Because all wisdom, all understanding comes from God. And he's the one that can reveal himself to you. And he's the only one that we can receive his will from. Not from philosophy, not from mentorship, not from any of these other things. But by far the most important thing that Paul said to the Colossians was talking about preeminence of Jesus Christ. That was the most important thing in which he said to them. Knowing the will of God and knowing about hope, all of these things are important. And if we were to put everything that has been said before in the, into a nutshell, 
God is the source of all things. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are able to receive hope. When we receive this hope, we build on it faith and love. Because from that hope that we have, we are propelled to carry out, to have faith. And we are propelled to show love to our brothers and sisters. From this, it continues to grow. And it bears fruit, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And when we have this, we are rooted. And once we are rooted, it becomes impossible for us to just be dragged away into something else. But like I said, most importantly is understanding who Jesus is, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And that is what we have from verse 15 to verse 20. It says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of our creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The most important figure in all of this is Jesus Christ. What Paul was trying to tell the Colossians was understanding who to place their trust in, who to place their hope in. We have to trust in the Lord. The Bible says that we should trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. It is important because humans, here's the interesting thing about us. We can't do without trust. We can't do without placing trust in something. And we cannot do without placing hope in something. It's not possible. Even the nihilists, the, a nihilist is a person who feels that everything is pointless. That there is no any, there is nothing matters. That's what they will tell you. And they will tell you that because of that, you know, they're not reliant on anything. They feel like anything. But here's the thing. Even the nihilist relies on their nihilism. Even the one who says that nothing matters relies on that nothing mattering. Or their beliefs or the things in which that they hold dear to them. Therefore, as humans, we cannot do without trust. We cannot do without belief. We cannot do without placing our hope on something or in something. And for the believer, this has to be Jesus Christ. This is why heresy is so dangerous. Because when heresy creeps into the church, when it creeps into the life of an individual, it causes us to place our hope in something else or our trust in something else. But it has to be Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is God and he's the only one who is reliable. Verse 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says that, Come, let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness. We are made in the image of God, but Jesus was different in that he is the image of the invisible God. If we look at John chapter, 4, uh, John chapter 14 verse 9, 
One of Jesus' disciples asked a question. They asked Jesus, is he show us the Father? And Jesus was looking at them with bewilderment. What do you mean? He says, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because Jesus is the image of God, it means that anyone who turns to him has turned to God. Because that is who Jesus is. That's different. It's different when they say someone is the image of someone and someone is like or is made in the image of. That's, that's the difference between that's the difference between Nelson Mandela having a son that look that is, you know, essentially like a carbon copy of him. And someone deciding to do um, 86 plastic surgeries to look like Nelson Mandela. There's a huge difference between those two. A lot of people say I look like my father. Uh, when I was younger, I used to deny it. I said, no, no, no. I don't, what do you mean? I don't look like him. I don't look like him. I don't look like him. Until they showed me a picture of my father in his late 20s, early 30s. And I kept my mouth shut. I shut up. I said, ah, okay. I'm in the image of my father. Anyone who has seen me would have an idea of what my dad looks like. That was, that's Jesus in that he is the express image of God. Because the Bible tells us that no one has seen God at any time. That's true. We've never seen God. No one has seen God. But once we have seen Jesus, then we have indeed seen the Father. Because that is what his word tells us. And he continues in... He says that he's the firstborn of every creature or is the firstborn of all creation. That particular line must be, we must be careful with it because this is where the Aryans fell into problem. Because the Bible said that he's the firstborn of all creation, a lot of people had that in mind saying that, oh, that means that he was the first one created. So a lot of people have fallen into the error of stating that being the firstborn of creation means that he was made first. So essentially, think of, think of him as, a, as Adam Prime, so to speak, or Adam Zero, if we were to go by that kind of terminology. But Jesus is more than that. Because when they say he's the firstborn of all creation, doesn't mean that he was created first. No, it means that he's above it all. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. Which says, write to the angel of the church of Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Of God creation. That is what it means when they say Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that he's the originator. Because the Bible tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Which means that the moment God said, let there be light, Jesus was in action. Jesus was in action. 
And the other verses confirm this because it says that through him all things were made. That all things were made through Christ Jesus. So that for him all things were created that are in the heaven and on the earth, visible or invisible. Because he's the maker of all things. And he's above all things. So he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Some of these things, when it talks about dominions and rulers and everything, these are some designations of, will I say, divine beings. But essentially stating that Jesus is above them all. Because in the heavenlies, we have different kind of beings. They are mysterious. We don't know all of them. We know about the angels, but we also know that they are archangels. We know that there are 24 elders. We know that there are four living creatures. We know that there are all sorts of things, some of which that we may not have even heard of or we don't even know or the Bible has not revealed to us. We don't know. But essentially, he's saying that Jesus is above all of this. And in fact, he's the one that created them because he's God. He's God. And he says that he was before all things. And by him, all things consist. Meaning that he was first before all things. And in him, all things were made. And then he says that he's the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. In the book of Ephesians, there was a lot more emphasis on the body of Christ. And that's true. We are the body of Christ. But it's here explaining that Jesus is the head. Not anyone else. Not any man. Not any other creature, not any, not, not any other deity. But Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. And he continues to talk about how it pleased God to have all of his fullness in Jesus. To have his fullness dwell in him. That's why the Bible tells us about how the Holy Spirit filled Jesus without measure. We all have a measure of faith. There was no measure. There was no limits when it came to Jesus Christ. These are all very, very important things because it strengthens our theology. It strengthens our understanding of who God is because our hope must be in Jesus Christ because he is indeed the first. He's the beginning of all creation. He's the one that made all things. We have some of it here. Because these are some of these key characteristics that we must, we must realize that he's the one who made all things. He's the firstborn of the dead and he's above all things. And this means that if there's any trust to be placed, then there's only one candidate. It must be placed in Jesus Christ. Not in anything else. There is no wisdom. There is no secret knowledge. There is no alpha on top of any mountain anywhere that can save us or that can present us on the day of judgment spotless and without blemish. Only Jesus can do that. And as, and as believers, we must understand this, that Jesus is first and above all things. He's above all Christian literature. He's above all podcasts. He's above all any other thing in which we say that we can contact the spiritual. 
which means that our hope must be placed on him and him alone. Because when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, then the heresies that we are, we are hearing today would not affect us. Think about it. All of the people who believe very weird things about Jesus, those who will say Jesus did not say certain things in his life, so why are we bothered about it? Oh, Jesus never mentioned, you know, what you do in your, who you, who you want to lie with, who you want to be with. Now, Jesus never mentioned that, so why are you so hot and bothered about it? Or Jesus never said this, so why are you so hot and bothered about it? Jesus never said this. All of these people, if they had a full understanding of who Jesus is, then they would think differently. If they understood that Jesus was, is God and is not some messenger, he's not simply some representative, he's not simply the nice guy, he's not the nicer God, as I like saying, that Jesus is not the nicer God. When you understand that he's indeed above all things, that he's a consuming fire, just as he is the savior of the world who died for our sins. So what does this mean for us as Christians in the church? Because ultimately, this is a message for the church. So how do we relate it to our lives? First thing is that he must be first in our lives, in all things. It means that we must come to a place whereby all our decision-making, all our thoughts, all our plans, all our everything is subject to him because he is first. This is hard because as the, we live in a world where we have been taught to put ourselves first, we've always been told that it is our happiness that matters. As long as you're happy, you must have heard that line many times in your life. Oh, as long as you are happy, as long as you are at peace, you, you, you. And even as believers, we've, we've swallowed it. Some people have swallowed it. Some people have taken it in. Therefore, they're like, well, I'm, I'm happy and I feel connected to God, so nothing else matters. But it does. Because first, we must realize that Christ is the protagonist here. He is the hero of the story, not us. And when we realize that, then we'll start to subject everything under him. And then no one will be able to lie to us. Because guess what? Another thing about the heresies, another thing about the heresies is this. All of the heresies always lift up man. It's a common thing among all of the heresies. The Gnostics, when they said that, oh, Jesus is a representative of a good God, while the Old Testament God was a wicked God, their main thing was that they had secret knowledge, that they had a knowledge that only they could harness, or only they had access to, that no one else did. That's the glorification of man. Or the ones that said that he wasn't God, that you know, that he was created. Essentially, they're saying that he was created, he was like us. If we work hard enough, we can be like him. Or the ones that said that, oh no, he's divine. He doesn't have a human, he did not have a human mind, or he, did not, he wasn't a human. Some people even tell you that it wasn't him that died. 
They tell you that. Why are they saying that? Again, it's a glorification of man to be able to say that he could not fully understand who we are. So we must chart our own course because he could not fully get it. He is God in heaven. He came to die for us. Yes, he came to save us. Yes, but as humans who understand ourselves, we are the ones that must chart a course. And if we look at the modern, some of the modern heresies that you see today, some of the modern heresies, some of the progressive Christianity, all of these things, again, it's the same thing. Glorification of man, glorification of yourself. How do I feel about this? What is God doing in my society whereby I can be the forefront of it? And when we recognize that Jesus must be first in all things, including our lives, then we might start to drop those attitudes. People might start to drop those attitudes if they understood that. And this is not about me. It's about Jesus. Then no one will come and lie to you. Because when they come to lie to you, you'll be like, but is this glorifying Jesus? It's not. Then no. It can't be the truth. Jesus must also be first in the church. This is also very important because the Bible, as we just read, it said that he's the head of the church. One of the problems of the church today is I don't think we are letting Jesus be head. A lot of places today are not letting Jesus be the head. Jesus is an advisor. Jesus is part of the council of elders. So, it's essentially a case of, oh, okay, Jesus said this, okay, we'll, we'll take it under advisement. But let's do this instead, because this makes sense. Let's do this. When Jesus is not the head of the church, then that's when doctrines will start to change. Because he's no longer the head of the church. If he's not the head of the church, who is directing affairs? Who is directing what is said? Who is directing where every, the direction of, of the church? Then we are going to go astray. So, of course, it's no surprise that there are so many who are going astray today. Because Jesus is not the head of several churches. But he must be. Because that is the only way that we will not be deceived. The Bible tells us about how crafty the deceiver is, how crafty the false prophets are going to be. And it says that even some of the elects, that they will tempt them. We're not smarter than anybody. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, talks about if you look at, say, look at yourselves and paraphrasing, that there are not many smart, there are not many noble. Because it has pleased God to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we must embrace that foolishness. We are not that smart. And because we are not that smart then, Jesus is who we are going to rely on. Because the only one who can show us the way. So he must be head of the church. And the final point that we have here is that there must be nothing else attached to him. Nothing else attached to Jesus. We can't have a social justice Jesus. We can't have a, we can't have a hyper grace Jesus. We can't have a murderer Jesus. We can't have any of those distorted views of Jesus. It has to be Jesus and Jesus alone. Because again, 
Another thing about the heresies that we'll find, another common thread with all the heresies, is trying to join Jesus to something, to a cause. Jesus wants to liberate the marginalized. And so he's connected to the marginalized and then things are distorted. Jesus hates capitalism. Jesus was a socialist. So of course, we bring socialism and then we attach it to Jesus like a cart to a horse. So okay, let's attach it. Let's be carrying that luggage. Then it's not Jesus. As your hope of glory, the one who could, the one who has saved you, who has translated you from the kingdom of darkness, that simple gospel that has created hope in your hearts, that has enabled you to have faith, that has enabled you to have love, don't leave it. And the only way not to leave it is to know Christ and know who he is and understand who he is. And only then will you not be shaken. And that's why verse 23 says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, and made a minister. That as long as you hold on to that faith, as long as you hold on to that very simple faith, the faith that people might denigrate, that people might abuse and say, you're being too archaic, you're not keeping up with the times, you're not understanding things that they should, you're not moving with, you're not moving with reality, you're not moving with compassion or whatever it is that people will say. Let's not complicate the gospel. Let us keep the true Jesus as the center of all things. Because once he's there, then there's nothing for us to worry about. If we keep Jesus as our true north, then we are not going to get lost in the sea of endless philosophies and doctrines that we find ourselves in today. And I pray that the Lord will help us in Jesus' name.